I would talk to pastors and say, divorce saves lives and you need to decide which side of this you're going to be on. you're a licensed counselor, you need to assume that one half of the people walking through your door have experienced some kind of violence. And you need to screen for it. Because if it's there, you can't be doing marriage counseling with them. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Untangled Faith podcast. This week, I'm chatting with Gretchen Baskerville. Gretchen is the author of the book, The Life-Saving Divorce, Hope for People Leaving Destructive Relationships. This book addresses some of the misconceptions about what the Bible has to say about marriage and divorce. In fact, she even set me straight about a verse I have been misquoting. I wrote this book for people like me. Mm. And there are so many people uh, who were brought up in good Christian homes or, or, you know, found Christ young. And so when we were ready for marriage, we just had so much faith, so much hope. We were so ready for marriage. We wanted to have that deep emotional connection with our, our Christian spouse. Uh, we wanted that mind blowing sex. We did everything right. And my parents have been married for 60 years and counting. They have Mm -hmm. a lovely, happy marriage. And so I just expected the same, uh, being brought up in a Christian home. And I had just always been told at church, you know, God plus you plus me equals a great marriage. It's going to be almost a guarantee. Or if you do have some problems, you know, everyone has ups and downs, you know, you just stay and pray you know, God will fix your marriage. And these were the promises that my church passed along to me. Christian marriage authors passed along, focus on the family passed along. And so naturally, I believed them. So when I started dating my husband-to-be back in the 1980s, he asked my father if he could date me. We met at church. You know, we he asked my for my hand in marriage And I walked down that aisle, a beautiful, radiant, virgin bride. I was so attracted to my husband. I could hardly wait for our wedding night. And I just expected this was my my path in life. You know, the, the white picket fence, the two kids, the dog, whatever. But very soon after the wedding, um, I realized something was off. So I did exactly what I've been taught to do. You stay and pray. Uh, claim God's promises. You ask the Lord for healing. And I knew that I was in trouble when a pastor who had met with us before our marriage and knew something about my husband's uh, past came to me a year after the wedding and said, I'm really sorry. Kind of like, I'm really sorry. I encouraged you to marry him. Oh, but what could I do? I am a devout Christian girl. I went to Wheaton College. I've got a degree in Bible and in Christian education. I have done nothing. I worked in Christian organizations Mm -hmm. from the day I graduated from college. What am I going to do? Of course, I'm going to stay and pray. Mm -hmm. I wasn't given any other alternative because even though I learned over time that I had absolutely biblical grounds for divorce, how could I leave? Because I was also taught by my church and by Christian marriage authors, and by focus on the family, that somehow divorce meant that I was selfish, or maybe I was lacking in spiritual maturity, or maybe um, I just was emotionally immature. And by this time, I had children. So I was also taught by my church, by Christian marriage authors, and by focus on the family, that divorcing was a selfish act. Yeah that parents would never, ever do because 
all of those people gave me the message that divorce universally destroyed children. Mm. And so, so I divorced actually 20, over 25 years ago. After a few years, uh, the woman's ministry director at my church said, you know, you've got a great message. Uh, you would be a great friend to other single mothers who are going through this at our church. We, att- we attended a, a, a mega church. So of course we we had we had um, a lot of women who were single moms, uh, mainly due to divorce. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I paired up with another single mom, and in back in 1998 we started our first um, single moms and divorce recovery group. Wow! And so I started writing curriculum for that. Remember, I've got a degree in Bible and Christian ed and, you know, mainly about how God loves us and God's going to walk through these valleys with us. And um, that set, I started writing and writing and writing. And finally, 20 years later, after I'd been a single mom for 20 years and had raised my kids and my youngest had finally uh, left home and I finally did remarry, um, my new husband said, you know, you have got a lot to say Mm. on this topic. You keep saying that you're going to write a book. People keep telling you to write a book. Maybe it's time to write the book. (laughs) So I really appreciated having that kind of um, encouragement and that kind of support from my new husband. And so um, I started writing it in earnest and, and it took me two years to really interview a lot of people. My my husband had a, a background in journalism, and he said, this can't be, this book cannot be just your experiences in Southern California and Los Angeles mm-hmm. County. You need to interview Baptists from Tennessee. You need to interview Black women from Alabama. You've got to interview people from Canada. You've got to interview people from all different kinds of churches and all different parts of the world. So it did take me a while to interview all those people, in addition to the literally thousands of hours I have of listening to people, you know, meeting at my own church, um, weekly church um, uh, single mom support groups and divorce recovery groups. So that's how it started. I thought I would get a lot of pushback. I thought a lot of people would hate me and yell at me and scream at me, but you'd be surprised. I just don't get very much pushback at all. In fact, I've seen at least one church denomination change their official statement as a result of my book. So um, change it on their official statement page. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm really excited to walk alongside now nearly 4,000 people in my private Facebook group, The Life-Saving Divorce. And um, at both men, and now I I minister to both men and women. Um, This is just a a one-person show. Um, I just do it uh, now that I'm retired. This is what my calling is from the Lord. So I'm really thrilled to be doing it. And, And as I was researching it, I discovered that we had not only been misled about divorce and divorcees, but we had been misled about children and divorce. And we had even been misled about the Bible verses of about mm-hmm. divorce. So that's how I got going. Sorry, that's kind of a long answer. I, I, I love going. that. I, I think you got some really great advice from your, your now husband about getting a lot of feedback. That's such a great great place to come from because you're not, you're not a therapist. And so to say, I know my story, but I'm going to gather some other stories as well. Just made it, makes it much more, um, just gives you a stronger, a stronger resource for people. Uh, Obviously, um, from what you have said, you, you are a believer, you're a Christian, your Christian faith has informed this journey for you from the very, very beginning. And so I know you have heard all the arguments for and against divorce, like when it is okay, when it is not okay. I think most prominently people know about the Bible verses that say, you know, God hates divorce and that God allows it for infidelity. But I don't know if we are clear on all the other things. 
what if I want to be a faithful follower of Jesus and I'm in a marriage that's really destructive, but I don't think it's, I don't think there's infidelity, you know? And I'm saying that as somebody, I'm in a great marriage, but like in general, if somebody's listening and I don't think there's infidelity, but there's other things that are problematic. What does the Bible say to somebody like that? Somebody that may be involved in something that there's domestic violence or there's addiction, um, other things like that. Oh, well, you're right. You do speak for a huge number of Christians who say, my marriage is so destructive. It's so painful. I have begged God to change it. I have pled on my knees, Lord, fix my marriage. I've done everything. I've read every single marriage book. I've gone to all the marriage seminars. I've even gone to these super expensive, you know, weekends to remember or hope restored or any number of these marriage intensives. And my marriage is not any better. And I'm starting to fall into despair. In some cases, they are feeling danger, maybe actual physical danger, but sometimes it's just threats, verbal threats of danger, Mm -hmm. or on the far other end of the spectrum, it might be complete indifference. That Mm -hmm. spouse has now almost cut you out of their life emotionally. Uh, If they were to see you crying on the floor, retching and vomiting due to stomach flu, they would just walk over you and walk out the door and go to work. And these are real stories I've heard from people. This level of abuse and neglect is is not just physical. It goes on through, you know, refusal to provide. You know, uh, 2 Timothy uh, 5.8, I'm doing this from memory, I hope I've got this right, says that a man who won't provide for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. Mm. That's kind of an interesting Bible verse, but the whole concept that uh, spouses are to uh, provide at a minimum standard level is just something that Christians don't get, but it's been in the Old Testament all along, and Exodus 21, 9 through 11 is the bedrock verse for Jewish marriage even to today. Let me tell you about two different Bible verses. There are two Bible verses that say, actually command men to divorce their wives if they refuse to care for them. Mm. Why didn't anyone ever tell us this? If we believe an Old Testament verse like Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce, why don't we believe an Old Testament verse straight out of the law of Moses saying, men if you're not going to take care of your wife, let her go, mm-hmm. let her go, presumably to find someone who does care yeah. for her. So let's go over those two verses. If you don't, if you have time, is that yes, okay? Yes. I would okay. love to do that. So the first one is Exodus 21, nine through 11. As I mentioned before, this is to today, still the bedrock of Jewish marriage theology. And what it says Apparently, there must have been some real problems at the time of Moses with men taking advantage and abusing their low-ranking wives, okay? So a low-ranking wife might be an indentured servant who you got as a debt repayment. You know, you weren't really in love with her. This wasn't really an advantageous match to you, but the guy who borrowed money from you or, you know, can't pay you back. He doesn't have any sheep or goats or anything. So all he's got is his daughter. Mm. And um, the other instance is in Deuteronomy 21. I think it's 10 through 14. And it talks about a low, another kind of low ranking wife. And that would be a wife who you, you found as uh, from doing a, a raid on one of your enemies, you know, an enemy town, uh, an enemy outpost, all the POWs have been collected together. You see a good looking woman, you say, you know what? I haven't married yet. She looks pretty good. I'll take her. So this isn't a woman that you had to write, you know, love letters to. You didn't have to woo her. You didn't have to win her over. You didn't have to win over her parents. You didn't have to pay a bride price you just got her free. Mm. 
So this is the other kind of low ranking Old Testament wife. And apparently the treatment of these kinds of wives must have been so problematic that Moses had to pass a law as what to do. Because in the first instance, if you were to take on a second wife, let's say that you took on a second wife who you really did care about, um, who uh, wasn't low ranking, let's say that you know, uh, she was, her father was an equal rank to you. And that meant you needed to pay a bride price. And her father gave her a dowry. Let's say that it was a date palm tree orchard. (laughs) You could benefit. You got to sell all those dates and you got to make a profit on that. Now the date palm orchard still belonged to, was sort of held in trust for your wife but you could benefit. So that would be a high or normal ranking wife. Okay. Um, There's a story in in the Old Testament about one of Solomon's wives. Uh, He he was married to uh, uh, a princess, daughter of a king, and her dowry was an entire city. So Solomon got to benefit from the income he made off this entire city, but it was held in trust for his wife. Anyway, So let's go back to this. So let's say that you marry a second wife, someone Mm -hmm. who's higher ranking, you know, not, not super high, not super wealthy, but just a normal Israelite wife. You cannot take wife number one and reduce her to concubine status or to slave status. Mm -hmm. You can't reduce her wife, her, her food. There was a fixed amount of food that you had to give her. We know that from the rabbinic literature There was a fixed amount of new clothing you had to provide for her every year. We also know that through rabbinic, ancient rabbinic literature. And you had to give her her marital rights, which I think we can call love. It was it was a combination of affection and sex and Mm -hmm. and just, you know, loving kindness. So let's say that the guy was really a miser. Let's say that, you know, he really didn't want to pay for that food, that high quality food. He didn't want to give her uh, new clothing every year. Let's say that she was such a good um, cook, though. He wanted to keep her. Mm-hmm. And um, so he just basically made her a slave in the kitchen. She could actually petition the Jewish court of, of that time, of Old Testament times, and say, my husband isn't treating me at wife status, and I need a divorce. Now, men could simply write out on a piece of pottery or a piece of leather or a piece of papyrus or whatever it was, I'm divorcing you. You are free to go. You are free to remarry. And he could send you out the same day. Yeah. He doesn't have to go to court at all. Now, a woman would have to go to court. A woman would have to, the court. So what the court would do, and there's a hysterical story about this in rabbinic literature, the court would actually hire Gentiles to beat this Israelite man until he volunteered to give his wife uh, the certificate of divorce that she would to leave the house and be able to marry someone else. And the same thing kind of happens in in the Deuteronomy story, uh, Deuteronomy 21 with the POW wife. Remember, she is a POW but he's elevated her to a wife. He can't bring her back down to POW status. He can't make her a slave, you know, that he can, you know, hey, uh, tell his sister, his brother, hey, you can use my, uh, you know, former wife to tend your goats out there. He can't do that. He has to let her go. So this is God's loving provision for wives who are so low ranking. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's no penalty to a man to just uh, dump her there. Now there is a, of course there's a penalty, right? If he dumps a a normal Israelite wife, because she's going to take that date palm orchard with her, right. To her next marriage. Sorry, you lose, you lose profits. Wow. If you dump a, a normal Israelite wife, these are things that any Jewish person at Jesus time would know. Yeah. They would have understood neglect and abuse and a total abandonment, of course, are grounds for divorce. So when Jesus is, when the Pharisees are testing Jesus, they ask him, can you divorce for 
any old reason, and they're asking him specifically about Deuteronomy 24, the Bible verse that says that a man can send, if he finds anything indecent in his wife, he can send her away and give her a certificate of divorce. And then she's free to remarry and he's free to remarry. Jesus is basically saying that, no, that verse is only talking about indecency, meaning infidelity on her part, something, some kind of sexual immorality on her part. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about burning the toast or, you know, ruining a meal or anything like that. And, and what I'm telling you here about Jesus reply being based on Deuteronomy 24, I'm not inventing a new theory. This theory has been around for centuries. In fact, I found it in a book, a a theology book uh, dated back to 1840. So it is Jesus was being asked specifically by Pharisees in a situation where they wanted to trap him Mm -hmm. and uh, whether he would go for you know, divorce for any grounds or divorce only for really serious grounds. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the the Jewish people would understand the context of that gives a whole new meaning. And the fact that allowing divorce really was a way of offering protection to these women in a way that was a legal sort of protection for them. Well, you know, what's so interesting is we, we were talking about Malachi 2.16, the so-called God hates divorce verse. That has, and, and people have a tendency, we Christians have a tendency to believe that that is both the oldest and the most traditional understanding of that verse. And it's neither. The book of Malachi was written 500, nearly 500 years before Jesus was born. So it had been around a long time. Uh, before Jesus, and it had already been translated into the Septuagint, which was uh, Greek, uh, into the, I believe, even the Targums, or maybe that was after Jesus. Anyway, it had already been translated into other languages, and those interpretations didn't say God hates divorce. Mm -hmm. And then after Jesus, I think the Targums are, which is Aramaic after Jesus. And then the Jerome and the Vulgate did not say God hates divorce. And then John Wycliffe, remember John Wycliffe? He, when he wrote his Bible in English, he did not translate it as God hates divorce. Neither did Martin Luther when he wrote his German Bible. Mm -hmm. He didn't interpret Malachi 2.16 as God hates divorce. Neither did John Calvin. Wow. He didn't translate it as God hates divorce. So for the first 2,100 years after Malachi was written, from the day Malachi, the book was written, it was never interpreted as God hates divorce. It was always interpreted something about a man who hates his wife, not God who hates divorce. Wow. It wasn't until King James and his translation team got involved that they changed it from a man who hates his wife to God who hates divorce. And that started for 385 years. It started a trend. Unfortunately, that 385 years you know, is part of our lifetime, right? Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And so, so that the King James influenced the ASV, the NASB, the NIV for a few years, uh, a lot of other, a lot of other translations. Well, guess what happened? When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the 1940s, and scholars really spent a lot of time studying them and finally published Malachi in, I believe, the late 1990s, guess what? We had to change our translations. Wow. So no new major translation that's been published since 1996 says God hates divorce. You're blowing my mind, Gretchen. So some of some of your listeners are going to say, wait a second, Gretchen, you are completely wrong. I've, I've got the NIV. I've got the NIV 1984, and it says God hates divorce. And I will say, yes, you are right. The 1984 version of NIV Mm -hmm. does say God hates divorce or he hates divorce. Wow. Take a look at the 2011 version. They had to change it. 
So now that verse is talking about men who hate their wives and unjustly divorce them. Yeah. But the, uh, the God thing, hates divorce message is still permeating. It yeah. sure is. And so look at the English standard version, mm-hmm. the version done by Crossway, the one that's used by so many reformed churches. It doesn't say God hates divorce either. Look at the Christian standard Bible. I was just going to ask Bible, that. Christian standard Bible published by Lifeway, the, the publishing Baptist, arm SBC. of the Southern Baptists. Yeah. Guess yeah. what? It doesn't say God hates divorce. It's, it talks about a man who unjustly hates his wife and divorces her. We've got a lot of repair work to do in our churches on this topic. And I really hope to be a beacon out there saying, hey, the scholars all know it. Yeah. Why, is not, why isn't this information trickling down from the ivory towers of academia and getting into our churches. Yeah. Gretchen, this is, this just fits so well. So many of my listeners are, have experienced some sort of hurt disillusionment in um, their faith communities. And they really are, you know, a podcast is called untangled faith and they really are in this state of like untangling their experience and really looking at it and saying, what is real Christianity? And what are, what are these things that we've sort of bundled in with it that aren't actually in the Bible or we misunderstood. This is such a great addition to that conversation. What, what would you say to people that are like, well, and you probably said you haven't had a lot of pushback. That's great. What if someone were to say, Gretchen, obviously divorce isn't good. Like, are you championing divorce, Gretchen? No, no divorce. Everyone should divorce. No, Yay. I'm Yay, not divorce. saying that. No, I think that as Christians, I think we can be wise mm-hmm. and we can be discerning and we can say, indeed, there are frivolous divorces. There are immature people who, girls who just wanted to wear a white dress and have a, a day all to themselves, but they weren't really committed to the value and the ideals of marriage. Yeah. Um, I think we we know there are uh, divorces that are completely unjust. Some guy goes and runs off with his secretary yeah. um, and dumps his wife and the little children and maybe doesn't even pay child support. Yeah. We know as Christians that there are frivolous divorces or unjust divorces, but we also know that there are situations that are so horrifying that you know, we get in ourselves into this cognitive dissonance, because if we've bought into this God hates divorce, this message that only existed for 385 years, then God must be a monster mm-hmm. to keep you in, an, abu- in an, a, an abusive relationship, maybe one where there's complete indifference or, you know, like, like the Old Testament, low ranking wife, mm-hmm. he no longer cares about you. He doesn't care about giving you any food. You're going to eat the pig slops in the kitchen with the slaves. He doesn't care about your clothing. He, d- he won't even do normal maintenance for you. Mm. He doesn't care whether you're loved or not. And so we know that there are serious, serious situations and it messes with our understanding of who God is. If God doesn't let people out of these marriages, then God is kind of siding with the abuser. Mm. And God is just as cruel and unkind and uncaring as our abuser is. And that when I started doing interviews, I found so many abused wives who said, staying in abuse and following my pastor's instruction to stay and pray merely taught me and my children one thing, that God was cruel, that God was mean, and that he really didn't care about me. All he cared was that I checked the married box when I filled out forms. I'm, I don't want to throw the, the doors open to divorce, but when we have one in four Christian couples uh, claiming in surveys, answering questions that show us that one in four are experiencing interpersonal violence, Mm. we've got a lot more Christians being abused than we had, we even dreamed of. And one half of divorces in the United States are for really serious reasons, a pattern of sexual infidelity, 
uh, or sexual immorality that includes, you know, um, all the the criminal offenses Mm -hmm. as well. That includes physical abuse, emotional abuse, uh, coercion, Mm -hmm. indifference, neglect of duty. And those are really, really serious reasons. And I believe that the scriptures cover those reasons. When Jesus was asked specifically about that certificate of divorce that a man would give his wife and send her out the door, it was a a certificate that allowed her to remarry. Mm -hmm. Jesus was asked about it specifically by by the Pharisees, and he never said that those were prohibited. Before we move on to the next part of my conversation with Gretchen, I wanted to share about a podcast that I recently discovered the 10 minute Bible hour, and they have graciously offered to help underwrite this episode of the podcast. I would love for you to check them out. It's great for longtime believers who want a new way to engage with scripture. And it's accessible for those who consider themselves outsiders who just want to explore the Bible's story. I especially love that this is a great space for listeners like you who are untangling and unsubscribing to the trappings of cultural Christianity while holding on to what is true. There's no agenda here. It's a daily 10-minute podcast that gives you the Bible without a sermon. You can find the 10-minute Bible hour anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can find them on YouTube or at the tmbh.com. That's the tmbh.com. So, I think it's important that we that we as Christians can have some nuance in our view of divorce. Do I want people mm-hmm. leaving their marriages? Of course not. Do I think you should take some classes in communication first and and see if, is it a communication problem or does your spouse genuinely not care about your best interest? Is it that you're just not very good at working through conflict and, and you could maybe really use one of these marriage intensives or does your spouse just not care about your well-being? Mm-hmm. Those are really different things. And too often our pastors and our Christian authors and our Christian organizations lump those things together. And we've got to stop doing that. Mm. We have to separate out communication skills with the motives. And uh, I think that's really important. I watched some of the Caring Well conference that the ERLC did several years ago. And you probably know who Leslie Vernick is. You've probably heard of her. Her words were so powerful um, speaking to all these leaders. And she basically explained, you know, what's happening here is, you know, some of these marriages are already dead, whether you call it, whether it has a legal definition of divorce, which, which calls the time of death officially doesn't change the fact that some of this has already died. I feel like there is a big education gap in our, our leaders and churches. If you were to be in a room with pastoral leaders, what would you tell them? These are people that are asked to do marriage counseling for people. How would you help them to know if they are going to be able to help a couple or not? What would you say to them? It's a big question. If we believe in sin, then we believe there are people who won't turn from their sin. They are determined sinners. Uh, In my book, uh, I've got a whole chapter on um, biblical Bible verses about divorce, and then also how Christians over the centuries have viewed divorce. Gretchen shares a lot of different facts and resources throughout this conversation, and it would take a lot of note-taking to keep up with all of it. To give your pen a break and to allow you to enjoy this conversation without worrying about getting a Bible passage or a website written down just right, I have added links in the show notes for all of these things. And one of the, I love what the great reformer Martin Luther 500 years ago said. He talked about spouses who would apologize and weep tears and uh, and ask for forgiveness. But once they've done that a couple of times, they're just presuming. They're presuming on God's grace. Mm. They're presuming on your forgiveness. And you shouldn't be required to take them back because it's kind of fake. Uh, The other thing that Martin Luther and John Calvin believed was that, uh, for example, an an adulterer 
was already dead to God. So you can divorce if, if they're already dead to God, then you're already a widow. Mm. As a widow, you can remarry. For people who really want to dig into this, chapter six in my book is on, uh, it's, oh, wow, it's like over 50 pages. And I, it was edited by Dr. David Instone Brewer of, uh, of uh, Cambridge. And so he, um, he worked with me a couple of times on reviewing that and just making sure it was just right. Uh, did you know that the Puritans had over seven reasons for divorce? Wow. We never hear about that. We have records of more than 40 uh, divorces in the first century that the Puritans were here in uh, what eventually became the United States. The, the, the reformers uh, themselves, the English reformers, had more than a half a dozen reasons for divorce. I would talk to pastors and say, divorce saves lives and you need to decide which side of this you're going to be on. You can either take that hard-nosed view and side with abusers, or you can accept that divorce saves lives and that it's absolutely necessary in some cases, and you can side with the victims. Let me give you one more story mm-hmm. <laughs> in this area. As you probably know, up until 19, uh, 1969, in most states in the United States, in order to divorce, you had to go before a judge. Uh, it could, in some states, it was actually a jury trial. Mm-hmm. And you had to prove that there had been adultery. So you'd have proof, evidence, mm-hmm. sufficient evidence. You had to prove that there had been cruelty. You had to prove that there had been abandonment, which as you can imagine, cause spinoffs of all kinds of cottage industries yeah, where yeah. photographies would get a picture of the, you know, the guy really wanted divorce because he, you know, um, because of his wife's alcoholism, mm-hmm. but because adultery was the only reason, you know, he'd hire a photographer, he would hire a model, they would be in a hotel room together looking naked, click, Okay, see, there's been adultery here. Um, and wow. that was genuinely a problem in the state of New York. Um, the state of New York was the last of the states to uh, pass no-fault divorce. Um, but at any rate, so let's say that you were going before the judge and you said, my spouse has been beating me. There's been physical violence. Um, the judge could say, mm, uh, I'm really not convinced by your evidence go home, go home to your husband. Tough luck. Mm-hmm. In 1970, starting in night from 1970 to 1984, most of the states in the U.S., uh, as you know, there's no federal divorce law. Uh, divorces individual state by state. Most of them passed some version of no-fault divorce mm-hmm. laws. Mm-hmm. Well, you could imagine all the professors at all the universities who study sociology and social trends, they are lining up for a ringside seat to see what happens when you open the floodgates to divorce. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to society? What they did is they watched over the next 14 years as each state by state, the majority of states passed no fault, some version of no fault divorce. Um, Even today, they're all a little bit different. And then they let time pass. And they looked at the at the states that uh, passed no fault divorce that was unilateral, meaning one person could say, I want out of this marriage, Mm -hmm. and they could get out without the consent of the other person. That's what unilateral means. Mm -hmm. And so they watched this and they did, they watched what happens just in those states with the suicide rate of wives, the homicide rate of wives and the domestic violence rate by and against husbands and wives. And they saw that suicide Suicide dropped by 8 to 16% in those states that passed unilateral no-fault divorce. The domestic violence rate against uh, by and against uh, husbands and wives dropped 30%. And the, the uh, homicide rate dropped 10%. Wow. So we absolutely know 
that divorce saves lives. Literally. And by the way, I, I realize there are people, I'm just blowing people's minds left and right. They're yeah. going, whoa, 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 you're telling us stuff we've never heard. Yeah. How can I verify this? Do you have any studies to show this? Yes, I do. Uh, I have, uh, you can buy my book, but I have a lot of it free on my website. You know, you can you can click on, um, I actually have a blog post called uh, lifesavingdivorce.com slash divorce saves lives. Okay. You can you can find the study. I've already talked to you about Malachi 216. I have on my website, lifesavingdivorce.com slash Malachi. You can see all the, the way that verse was rendered prior to the King James. And then the, the other thing we haven't really talked about very much, the belief, uh, the message we keep giving, getting from our churches and, and Christian marriage authors and Christian pro-marriage at any cost organizations is that divorce universally destroys children. Yes, let's and talk that's about that. that's not true either. Mm. So that's another one. Uh, that's chapter, I would dedicate a whole chapter to that chapter seven. I mean, so if somebody it, were to say, we need to stay in this really unhealthy, destructive marriage for the sake of our kids you would say that doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And we've known that since 1995. So there's studies you're saying. Oh my goodness. We were never told about all these studies. Kaiser Permanente did a massive study in 1998 that says if you keep kids in a situation where there's physical, sexual, emotional abuse, or where they observe it happening, to their parent, either father or mother, or they're brought up in a house where there's substance abuse, so drugs, alcohol, criminality, mental illness, that their risk of uh, having uh, health problems in mm-hmm. adulthood yeah. is considerably higher. Yeah. And so it only makes sense that keeping them in that situation couldn't possibly. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's the other study that was done. And I'm, people always ask me, why didn't we know? Why didn't we know? Well, part of it is, you know, the academic world, these guys are researchers up in their ivory towers and they write studies that only get published in journals that you have to pay for. I had to pay 15 bucks for the study. I'm about ready to tell you about what they did is they, they did surveys of, of marriages um, and they asked what kinds of conflicts they were having. And, you know, and so they took marriages and divided them into five buckets. There were low conflict, medium, low conflict, medium conflict, high, uh, high conflict, and very high conflict marriages. And what they discovered, so a, a low conflict marriage that would end up in divorce that would be just somebody who got married for the white wedding dress. They were loving and accepting of their children. Their children felt safe and nurtured, but you know, they just wanted to go join the circus. <laughs> In fact, this, no kidding. I was just reading an article from the 18, 1898 where a guy in Ohio, his wife <laughs> joined literally a, a trapeze performer. <laughs> He was, he was a pastor. Wow. Um, Yeah. But those kinds of divorces are so damaging to children Yeah, because the children knew of a home that was safe, loving, and accepting. Mm -hmm. So the low conflict, the medium low, and even the average marriages where there's an average amount of conflict those are all when 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 you go through a divorce in one of those three, those are actually really pretty bad for kids. Yeah. Yeah. This it's is the, the nuance to the buckets. conversation. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's the last two buckets, the high and the very high conflict divorces. This is where, you know, the children, there's walking on eggshells. Everyone senses the tension. There might not be any physical violence, but there might be secrecy, deception, recklessness. Uh, remorselessness. These are the high, high, highly tense, high conflict marriages where everybody has conflict in marriage, right? Everyone does. Mm -hmm. But these are the marriages that the conflict never gets resolved in a safe, agreeable, and loving way. And the children sense it. They feel unaccepted, they feel unloved, or they feel that they're one of their parents is. I mean, these are the divorces when it happens in these kinds of, in these two buckets, where divorce is actually better 
for the kids' well-being than mm-hmm. staying. So in those super high, the fifth bucket, the really bad bucket, the researchers in 1995 actually found that children from divorced homes were 10 times, had 10 times better well-being mm-hmm. than kids whose parents stayed. And so why didn't we ever know? Well, part of it is this disconnect between the ivory tower academia and us. And part of it is that our churches just didn't want us to know. Our ideology as Christians is that divorce is always horrible. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that like it's necessarily an intentional thing, but it is a hard and humbling thing to hold the scripture and say to people, I've looked at this and I think I got it wrong. There are some people that are willing to do that and some, some that aren't. I think this information is so helpful. Gretchen, you've blown my mind like a million (laughs) ways here in in the best, in the best way. I I do want to ask you about maybe some misconceptions about, um, and I know you're not, you're not a therapist, right? but you have walked alongside and heard lots and lots of stories of women, particularly probably, but there's men that have been like hurt in, in destructive marriages as well. What, what are some of those misconceptions about abuse or domestic violence? And my, I'm going to suggest that a misconception, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that domestic violence means that somebody is leaving a bruise or a mark on somebody physically, right? And that this can be solved by couples marriage counseling. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, that is the traditional view that it's leaving a bruise and that this could be solved by marriage counseling. Both of those are obviously not a full understanding of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I actually had to put in my book, one chapter that just gives 130 examples of abuse Yes, because yes. abuse can be, as we talked about earlier, can be complete indifference, you know, stonewalling, refusing to, you know, make the decisions in a home that need to be made, where one spouse is critiqued or henpecked or browbeaten so much that they feel like it'd be better if they didn't even exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, This often happens with wives, but you know what, it happens with men too, Mm -hmm. where, you know, they're told that their opinion is, is worthless, that their solutions to a problem are, are stupid. You know, they could never get a job outside the home home or that they're just not pretty enough or nice enough. And you see this in some of the marriage at any cost organizations. They say, well, you deserved this cheating or this abuse or this indifference because you didn't set a positive enough tone Mm. in your home. I actually do have that as a free sample on my website. It's called uh, lifesavingdivorce.com slash 130 examples. Mm -hmm. And you can see that there's a lot of different kinds of abuse that aren't physical. Yeah, Um, Different parts of the world are at different places and being able to identify some of those things. I was reading um, some work done in the UK and they actually are kind of ahead of the game where it comes to understanding coercive control as abuse. Yeah, coercive control is now against the law, I think, in 14 U.S. states Mm -hmm. and in several major countries. And so you ask me specifically about why couples counseling is not Mm -hmm. indicated. I think the best way it's absolutely considered to be unethical to do couples counseling wherever there's abuse. Please speak on that. That's very important. Yes. Yeah, it's. And yet we have counselors who don't screen well for abuse. Now, why did I just put the burden on the counselor? Well, the counselor should have been trained that abuse victims don't always know that they're being abused. Yes. They've been told since the day they were born, if they were Christians, that marriage is hard. And so they expect marriage to be hard. So if he hits you or shoves you against the wall, oh, well, you know, and, and then we've also been told we have to can't go to bed on, let the sun go down on our anger. So I'm going to forgive. He just lost his temper. Mm. So all emotional outbursts, all physical outbursts, all violence is just swept under the carpet 
because that is the message we've gotten from day one. So they actually don't know that they're being abused. That's fascinating. Gretchen, I just heard Mike Cosper just did a a follow-up on his rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, Ah. talking about them in, you know, Christianity today doing their own internal investigation, like being investigated themselves because of treating uh, harassment of women. This, this applies to, I think the understanding of abuse in, in um, relationships as well, is that, you know, they would ask women in a study at some point, like uh, if they had ever experienced harassment um, in the workplace and it was a certain percentage, I don't know, but when they actually asked them about specific things that they had experienced, yeah. the percentage was much higher because they don't self select themselves into that. I have been harassed. And I would say a lot of men and women aren't going to self-select themselves into saying I have been abused because they don't know that words themselves can be abusive. Exactly. Words themselves can be a form of abuse or harassment. I've got Leslie Vernick's um, self-test on my website or a link Mm. to her self-test on my website. For anybody, I've got actually six different free self-tests. Mm. So if somebody is listening to this and they're not sure, is my marriage um, just sort of painful and disappointing or is it actually destructive and maybe abusive? You can go to lifesavingdivorce.com slash self-tests. And I've got a, I've got a number of them. Some of them are from Christians. Mm-hmm. Some of them are from, um, I think I've got one from John Hopkins, mm-hmm. uh, from medical centers like that. And so you could take several self-tests right now yeah. and see where experts would place you. And what happens when you go into to marriage therapy, where um, the therapist already has a predetermined pathway for you, they've determined that um, if it's not physical violence, that you need to be kept together. Yeah. And, and that everybody it, is responsible. And, and yes, there's two to, to tango. Those kinds of, of uh, marriage counselors are really dangerous. If if they believe two to tango that how and uh, they ask the victim how did you contribute to this if they say well you don't have any rights uh, you know being a christian means uh, jesus died for you uh, you have no rights to good uh, uh, treatment you deserve hell and so you you know you have no rights to being treated uh, kindly by your spouse. There's all kinds of manipulations. And I, I spent chapter three in, in my book talking about the 27 myths of divorce, but there's all, there's all kinds of ways. For example, um, you can't hold your, you can't say that your spouse has sinned against you because you're a sinner too. Mm. So when you get those messages from oftentimes from a Christian counselor, what ends up happening is they side with the abuser. Do you see what the, they're doing? Yeah. They're mutualizing yeah. the sin. They're saying that the sin has to be mutual. Somehow you have to be at fault. And they never hold the abuser. Uh, they, don't, they don't hold them responsible. And so they end up demoralizing the abuse victim even more. Yeah. And so that's why even secular therapists say, you need to, if you're a, 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 a licensed counselor, you need to assume that one half of the people walking through your door have experienced some kind of violence in their marriage. Why would they pay you a hundred and something dollars if it weren't something really serious? And so um, you need to assume that there might be some kind of interpersonal violence, whether that's emotional or physical, and you need to screen for it because if it's there, you can't be doing marriage counseling with them. Yeah. You need to send them to their own individual counselors to work on their own stuff. Mm, that is so powerful. Um, otherwise, you end up siding with with the abuser against the victim. Yeah, inadvertently because you didn't know inadvertently. better. Don't even mean to. Yeah, pastors, leaders, church leaders need to know this. They need to know that when somebody's walking in, like you said that they need to start with figuring out if there is some sort of abuse happening before they move forward with giving recommendations, doing their own pastoral marriage counseling, or here's my tip for anybody who's a people helper out there. Mm -hmm. If you're a people helper, Bible study leader, elder, deacon, Mm -hmm. deaconess, somebody in leadership, pastor, 
a biblical counselor. Go over and look at those self-tests I talked about earlier. Use those same, print those out. Make a list of questions that you ask people. You won't tell them, I'm, I'm doing an abuse test on you. You'll just say, you know, have you ever been, have you ever sat out in the driveway in your car at the end of the workday and sat there and dreaded walking in through that front door? Now, they didn't say, have you been abused? Mm -hmm. they, they give you these questions. Get the, know those questions so that you can start helping yourself identify if this is a person who's an abuse victim, even if they don't identify as an abuse victim. Yeah, 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 because it's too much, I think, to just say, hey, you just took the test. Congratulations. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I mean, there is a really specific, gentle way that trained therapists will walk people through that, that process. And it doesn't take away their agency either. It's to be, um, have you been following the story of John MacArthur's church? I imagine you have. Yes. Yes. I'm not that. too far from him. Uh, I've, I've known about him for many, many years and how they excommunicated a mom for not taking back a child abuser her, her pedophile husband yeah david yeah. david gray's story yeah. yeah it's it's shocking and and how they excommunicated the wife mm -hmm. and they supported the the known and convicted yeah. pedophile husband unbelievable yeah absolutely yeah. unbelievable yeah these things happen it's you know similar thing happened at the village church a while ago you know with they they excommunicated somebody for divorcing their, yeah, that their was husband. Matt, Matt Chandler's church. Yeah. And I don't so, remember. So, I think they came around to like acknowledging some fault in that. I don't know exactly how, how much ownership there has been there, but there is a lot of misunderstandings and well, it's, the people it's that are already hurting are carrying the, the heaviest load in that they're, they're paying the price for people not understanding. Yeah. They're they already hurting. They've been, they and their children have been victimized. And then the church uh, either spiritually disciplines them or excommunicates them. It is a it's a shocking problem. Christianity Today did a an article. I think it was back in 2019. Oh, it's on my website, and you can find it by going to lifesavingdivorce.com/excommunication. Mm -hmm. But Christianity Today did an article about how demographers expected to see a lot of evangelical divorcees attending church on a weekly basis or more. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was based on other kind of demographic work they had done with non-evangelical Christians. Mm -hmm. and what they discovered is that evangelical divorcees did not attend church as often as they expected. And it's due to these teachings that stigmatize divorcees as quitters who wanted to take the easy way out, who didn't stay and pray, who didn't accept their 50-50 their responsibility and, you know, abandon ship instead of letting God do the miracle. Mm. And so we've really just got to, we've got to stop this because yeah. even the most conservative pro-marriage, pro-family uh, research in, uh, think tanks out there, like the Institute for Family Studies, actually found themselves just in 2019 that one in four Christian couples, or I won't say Christian couples, highly religious couples, and here in America, that's going to be Christians, right? They experienced interpersonal violence. I mean, that's just a huge number. Now, happy couples aren't going to come in for counseling, right? Yeah. It's only going to be the unhappy ones, right? So you've got, if you're a pastor and you're listening to this, you need to be aware that there's a pretty good chance that something pretty bad's going on in there. And you're going to have to figure it out because the victim has been uh, gaslighted for through every message they've ever heard to just sweep it under the carpet and think that it's all normal and acceptable. I had seen a pastor of a pretty large church um, share, I don't know if it was an article or just like their thoughts about trying to push back and say, you know what, the church is really a safe place for women. 
um, you know, they're much happier and their marriages are so much better. Do you feel like there might be missing something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a really, there's a whole bunch of, um, research articles that get misquoted by Christians. And that's one of them. It's the Ross and Murawski. Uh, no, no, no. That's the Valorous study. And I I've got it on, that's the one. Okay. I'll tell you where to find it. It's, um, lifesavingdivorce.com slash F O T H B I S I G N A N O. Sorry. I had to spell it out. And I go through that particular study and it did indeed find that couples that go to church together do have a little bit lower uh, divorce rate. Yeah. I think this person referenced the Institute for Family Studies and Wheatley study, Wheatley Institute. Okay. So just to be really clear, the, uh, let's see, I'd have to know which one it is. Yeah. Uh, Institute for Family uh, Re- uh, Studies. I'm pretty familiar with them. They're mainly a think tank. They don't mm-hmm. actually do a lot of research mm-hmm. themselves. So I'd have to see what. Yeah, what this pastor study said was. further as a whole, the data shows that church attendance yields the most enjoyable and least abusive relationships for women. Okay, so I th- I, I have a feeling that what that is 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 um, an old study. If if he would look at the 2019 study from the same organization. It's called something like the world map of families. Okay. I happen to have it. Yeah. It's, uh, it's on my, it's on my website, lifesavingdivorce.com slash one in four, the number one, then I N the number four, mm-hmm. you'll find the link to that Institute for Family Studies uh, newest study. Uh, they have actually overturned what they've said in the past. Fascinating. By saying that one in four highly religious couples in the United States are uh, have experienced interpersonal violence. Um, but there have been earlier studies that suggested that if you both go to church together, your um, divorce rate is lower. And the problem is that even the researchers who conducted that study say, um, that's not what our study actually said. And so um, it's kind of technical, and I'd be happy to go through it yeah. with you on another um, conversation. But you know, when you have the same friends, and you get you get support from the same group of people, and your church helps you when you go through difficult times financially or you know in other ways, you do tend um, to um, stay together more. But it's because you have similar friendships, not because you're a conservative Christian because what that study actually found was that it was the main mainline church churches, which are considered to be just a little bit more liberal that stayed married, not the highly conservative ones. So it's kind of, it's, it's a very technical study and I don't have it right in front of me, me but I'd be happy to discuss it at, a, yeah. at another time. Well, I appreciate your time really. I mean, and obviously you have, you're really passionate about this and I, I'm so grateful for your ministry to hurting men and women. You are doing a great work and God saving people's lives through this. I, I really believe it. I'm, I'm just really, really grateful. Well, you're very welcome. Let me give one last sentence to sure. people who are going through divorce. The Lord will restore the years, the locust date. And if you needed a life-saving divorce, there is a very good eight in 10 children from these highly destructive situations do turn out to be just fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously two in 10 do not get them into therapy, but the vast majority of them turn out fine. Uh, what, they, what the researchers say is average, very mm-hmm. well, or even exceptional. Thank you. That's such an encouraging word. This is one of those episodes where I didn't do much voiceover. Gretchen had so much amazing information to share. I just wanted you to be able to absorb it without my thoughts. It was like a fire hose of historical context for the biblical teaching on divorce and marriage. And I'm still processing it all. And I've had a lot longer to sit with it. I did want to end with specifically pointing to the resources on recognizing abuse and reiterating what Gretchen mentioned about the idea of couples counseling when it comes to abusive relationships. 
It is unethical for counselors to have an individual in couples counseling together with their abuser. I can't say this strongly enough. If you are someone who does any kind of counseling as a pastor or a ministry leader, this is something you need to know. And understanding that many people don't self-select themselves into the role of abused is crucial. Many don't recognize what they have experienced as abuse because they may have never been physically injured. Domestic violence consists of much more than actions that result in physical injury. So check out the screening resources Gretchen mentioned by going to the links in the show notes. You can find that by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and click on episodes. I'd love to keep the conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook and Faith Untangled on Twitter. And like I said, you can find the show notes at untangledfaithpodcast.com. The Untangled Faith Podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. A special thanks to my Patreon supporters. This podcast is made possible in part by support from these patrons and from the Fritz family budget. That's me and my husband. Michelle Pianich recently joined our membership community at the producer level. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you guys. You make this worthwhile. All the messages that you send and every time you share an episode, it makes a difference. And I'm very grateful. Finally, I'm taking a break to enjoy some more time with my family and to work on some upcoming projects. So between now and the end of June, I'll be sharing some shorter content weekly with only my membership community. If you want access to that, check out patreon.com slash untangled faith, and you can join us over there for as little as $5 a month. I look forward to seeing you over there or back here in July.